I'm John Crawl. Today on No Limits, we're going to take a long look at where the Indiana General Assembly left things regarding pre-kindergarten education when the legislative session wrapped up. We will explore the ins and outs of early education in Indiana. My guests are Christina Hage, Vice President of Public Policy for the United Way of Central Indiana, Mike O'Connor, Senior Director, State Government Affairs, Eli Lilly and Company, and Ted Maple, President and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. Please join the conversation. Call 866-476-3881. Email is nolimits at wfyi.org. Facebook is No Limits WFYI. Twitter is WFYI. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're going to be talking about changes in uh, pre-K education in Indiana. If you want to join the conversation, as I suspect a lot of parents will want to do, uh, you can give us a call at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at nolimitswfyi or on Twitter at WFYI. My guests are Christina Hage. She is the Vice President of Public Policy for United Way of Central Indiana. Mike O'Connor, uh, who is Senior Director for State Government Affairs with Eli Lilly and Company. And joining us soon will be Ted Maple, President and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. Well, Christina, welcome to the program. Mike, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're working your way back into uh, into being a veteran. Uh, of the program. So, so Christine, I'm going to start with you. What did, it was a long session and attention was focused a lot on obviously the, the big ticket items, roads and, and bridges, infrastructure things. Um, and even a lot of the education attention wasn't necessarily focused as much on pre-K as it was on changing the role of the state superintendent of public instruction and all of that. So a lot of people may not be aware of, of what happened during this session. Can you give us a quick thumbnail, and then I'll ask Mike to, to do the same? Sure, of course. Um, so this session was building on a couple of sessions ago. In the state of Indiana, we have two pilot programs around pre-K. We have the On My Way pilot program, which is in five pilot counties, and we have an early education matching grant program that goes directly to providers. Um, during this session, we, lo- we were looking to expand the On My Way program to include more counties, and at the end of session, um, it was expanded from the current five pilot counties to add an additional 15 or 20 total counties. They'll be looking to expand it more um, to rural counties to see how um, those students in those counties um, can have access to high-quality pre-K. So which which 15 counties were they, Mike? I mean, well, and, and the perspective from the partnership to work yeah. together, so there's a corporate partnership working under the, un, under the umbrella of the United Way, was, quite frankly, we said, we're not necessarily the best people to say which 15 counties. Mm-hmm. We really left it to the state's uh, department of FSSA mm-hmm. to say, there are, you know, where do we have kids that need? We yeah. well, probably all, what's, What's 92 minus 5? 87 counties mm-hmm. um, have needs, but then sort of where is the infrastructure where we can take advantage of that and get to as many kids as possible with the money that the state legislature has appropriated for it? So we left that really to the experts mm-hmm. who, who know where these programs are. Um, and, then, and then we said, but we, we know we've got these five counties where, where we have kids on waiting lists, mm-hmm. uh, Marion County being primary. And, then, and, and we even have a, a third program in Marion County called the uh, Indianapolis Early Learning Program, where that's where Lily and some others, we mm-hmm. came to talk with you about that, yes. we put matching grants in when Mayor Ballard made it part of his program a few years ago. So we asked that we be able to expand within the five original pilot counties also to get to those kids that we know that are on waiting lists and families who have said we want to take advantage of those programs. Probably ought to take a, a, a step back and just ask, and I'll start with Christina on this, but why has uh, pre-K and early learning become such a priority for United Way, for companies like Eli Lilly, um, for a lot of uh, 
of Indiana. And I think you probably can sense where the follow-up is going to be. But <laughs> why is this so important? So that's a great question. So, you know, as a state, we spend $24 million a year annually on kindergarten remediation. What that means is that kids show up to kindergarten not prepared to learn. That ultimately holds them back their entire life. So if you think about a child entering school not ready to learn, less likely to um, pass their kindergarten reading test, which then less likely to graduate, which then less likely to become an active member of the workforce. So as you look at families and self-sufficiency, it's really a two-prong approach. It's helping the child at four years old be prepared for kindergarten while also Prepare, allowing the family to go back to work. So the reason United Way got so involved in this is we see this as moving people to financial stability while also creating a pipeline of talent and having families better prepared and contributing members. Mike, why is it a priority for Eli Lilly? Well, it's a priority for Eli Lilly because we view this as our home state, certainly mm-hmm. our home county, our home city, um, and and we we are one of the state's major employers. We have around 11,000 people within the state of Indiana that we employ. And then, you know, if you, if you count that multiplier mm-hmm. of sort of people that supply us everything else, you know, add another 25,000, 30,000 people. And as we look at workforce issues, um, you know, as, as Christina described, it's sort of this process by which once kids get behind it's harder and harder to catch up. You know, it, you know the old stat, we, we decide how many prison beds we need by looking mm-hmm. at at-risk third graders, that sort of thing. The other thing is, as a company, right, mm-hmm. we, we, we take risks every day because we, we develop medicines, the majority of which are going to fail at some point in the process. It, as John Lecklider, our former CEO, would say, if I knew uh, I was going to get a return on my investment that I get on pre-K, I do that every day. Um, we know from longitudinal studies that were started before I was in pre-K, mm-hmm. which was a long time ago, <laughs> um, that this works, right? The, yeah. the uh, Perry Preschool, the Chicago mm-hmm. studies, others that say essentially we, we know it, it, it prepares kids to be kindergarten ready. But, but let's throw out for a minute the, the educational advancements that come along with that. We also know the things that stick with them long into the future are what we call soft skills, the capacity to empathize, the ability to work at a table um, learning things. And it's sort of this, you know, we know they stay out of trouble. They stay out of prisons. They are more likely to be employed throughout their career. All these sort of things that come back. We know as a st- as a one of the state's largest employers as a company, I just looked, we, we paid $44 million in property taxes last mm-hmm. year to the state of Indiana. We know that's where we ought to be going with our educational dollars in the state of Indiana. So uh, let me then ask this. We talk about the return. You said if you you quoted John Lecklider um, mm-hmm. and said that if you get that kind of return on investment that you would in pre-K, what are the benefits we draw from investing in it? Have we and have we studied? We've obviously run these these five pilot programs here. What have we seen? Are there results? Have we been tracking yeah. that? The 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 you know the legislators I think legislators I think have wisely said, listen, if we're going to invest in pre-K. We want to track the kids. We want to know it's working. We want to know it's successful. The, the, you know, if you pick your any number of studies, um, they show anywhere from a four-to-one return, and that is not, as, as Christina talk, talked about, not having to do remedial work in, mm-hmm. in, to get them kindergarten ready, not having to do in, in, in um, Columbus, Indiana. The Columbus school system took their remedial dollars and invested them in their Busy Bees program, which is their their citywide pre K mm. program. Um, so they used existing dollars that they no longer needed to the extent that they needed them. They just reprogrammed them, and they're having much greater success in progression from grade to grade. So we we also know the Indiana program, the through the Early Learning Advisory Committee, has shown dramatic uh, Im- improvement in kids' learning. But it's also provided things like. Um, the the mothers the parents of these kids have been able to go while their kids are in the pre-k program either advance their own education or or expand their work hours and so there are any number of things and christine i don't know if i missed mm-hmm. anything from from what we know from return on investment 
Right. So IU actually did a study last year to look at the return on investment. And to Mike's point, um, they found that it was four to one. So for every dollar that the state invests in pre-K, we get about a $4 back. Um, and those were in three um, large buckets, which were kindergarten remediation, um, savings from um, criminal activity, and then long-term um, increase in salaries for those individuals that have access. Um, and one of the benefits that we found from the first year of On My Way, to Mike's point, was that many parents wanted to go back to work full-time or increase their hours, but without reliable early education for their child, that just wasn't a, an option. And so that was one of the um, effects that we saw from just the first year of On My Way. We have gotten a question from a listener via Facebook, and if you want to reach out to us via Facebook, you can find us at No Limits WFYI. You also can call us at 866-476-3881. Send us an email at nolimitsofwfyi.org or track us down on Twitter at WFYI. This listener writes, what are the goals of pre-K? Granted, children learn different skills at different rates, but what skills will a pre-kindergartner hopefully grasp by the end of their time in pre-K? Christina, I'll start with you. Sure. So um, it's actually measured through ISTAR-KR, which is um, the state's assessment. Um, but it's a couple different buckets around academic success, success and social success. Academic includes both math skills and literacy, um, so numbers, letters, things of that nature. And then also looking at the social-emotional skills that Mike had previously mentioned, so collaboration, communication, the ability to follow directions. Those are all things that when a child enters kindergarten, the assumption is that they have those skills. Unfortunately, there's many children throughout the state that have not either been exposed to that information or not had access to develop those skills. And so coming into kindergarten without those already puts them behind. So there is, um, there is a way to measure outcomes. So I, I want to ask because, uh, as, as Mike pointed out, we've done programs on, on, on this before. If the evidence is that compelling... Um, I'm going to take us on a tour uh, down history lane here. I, you know, I, I can recall when I was a newspaper reporter. Um, and you had hair back then. I too, did have hair back then. <laughs> I did have hair and far fewer lines in my face. <laughs> that Frank O'Bannon devoted his first state of the state to the importance of early education. And I remember talking with the late Indiana Senator Larry Borst about how important this was so we've been talking about this for 20 years. Why has it been so difficult to make progress on it? Mike, I'm going to start with you because you're of well, similar and, vintage. And, and you, will, <laughs> you will recall, actually, my, my memory of yeah. the – and I've been hanging around the legislature yeah. since 89, so you know, yeah. it tells you a little bit about my career path. But um, the, if you will recall, the, the real conversation with Governor O'Bannon was – was full day pre K, fully funding, uh, not mm. full day pre K, full day K, full day kindergarten, fully funding kindergarten for all students in the state of Indiana. Um, you, you know, we still have a state law that says essentially you don't have to start school till you're seven years old. Mm -hmm. That that is still inexistent. We can't require you to start school, and and so we do have that. And and but we also don't require kids to go to full day kindergarten. Now I think that is that is functionally fully operational, that, mm -hmm. that essentially, you know, a, a, as many kids as we're ever going to get in there are doing full-day kindergarten or certainly at least half-day kindergarten. But the, the, then, then there is a, you know, we're, we're fighting sort of the history of this is a, you know, Indiana's a little slow to change. This is a responsibility of the parents uh, to do. And, and aren't mm -hmm. we really just providing a, 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 a daycare? And, and Christina talked a little bit about the educational model, and, and I was glad to see Ted Maple yeah. come in, who actually Just has a PhD in, yeah. in uh, early yeah. learning. But, 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 you know, people should understand it. It isn't like we're teaching fifth graders. Pre-K education looks very different, ex experiential, um, and, and, and the, the classroom setting needs to be driven by people like Ted and others who know exactly what they're doing. And welcome to the program, Ted, by the way. Good Thank to have you, you joining us. Um, I guess where I'm going, and I remember um, Governor O'Bannon's 
speech where he he talked about how a lot of the new research showed that mm-hmm. that that age was the age at which um, you know people soak up information the most quickly, which is why we needed to be investing in. If anything, that research and that's something I think Ted can confirm when we come back for for the break. Uh, has been confirmed and reconfirmed and reconfirmed since then. So I want to talk a little bit about the challenges of why we have, we have pushed, had to push so hard at this. We are talking about the changes in Indiana pre-K on No Limits today. My guests are Christina Hage. She is Vice President of Public Policy for the United Way of Central Indiana. Mike O'Connor, Senior Director, State Government Affairs, Eli Lilly and Company. And we've just been joined by Ted Maple, President and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. I'm John Crawl. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, Director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're talking today about the changes in Indiana pre-K coming out of the just-completed session of the Indiana General Assembly. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. My guests are Christina Hage. She is Vice President of Public Policy for United Way of Central Indiana. Mike O'Connor, Senior Director, State Government Affairs, Eli Lilly and Company. And Ted Maple, President and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. Ted, uh, I I queued you up right before (laughs) we went to the break. Um, The premise of my question about why it's been so hard to make progress uh, on pre-K was that there's research showing that that those early years uh, are a huge missed opportunity, that, in fact, the brain absorbs information at a much faster pace at that time, um, and that uh, healthy, well-balanced children actually need it. Could you speak, as, as the one who does have the Ph.D. and has studied this stuff, could you speak to that and say whether, in fact, that's the case and, and maybe cite some of the research? Sure. And I think I heard um, Mike uh, allude to earlier the longitudinal studies that have looked at uh, the long-term benefits of high-quality early education. Um, th- in fact, uh, since then, there have been over 100 studies that have shown in different ways that um, children benefit at, uh, from high-quality early ed, not just preschool, but um, high-quality child care, um, birth through five um, and the benefits um, go beyond what you might expect to be academic benefits in the classroom, but um, social benefits, um, uh, benefits that help sustain individual success and benefit the community as well. I think Mike referred to uh, the Perry Preschool Project, uh, the Chicago uh, study, uh, the Abyssidarian Project out of North Carolina is often cited. But also we have a number of state studies um, that have looked at uh, both short-term and long-term success that give us confidence that when we uh, provide quality pre-K, if it is high quality, that has to be high quality, then we'll see benefits not just for children but for their families, uh, for their fellow classmates, for for the, the society. As a former kindergarten teacher, I can tell you that um, it was pretty easy to tell on the first day of kindergarten uh, when uh, the children, all 20, 25, 26 kids walked into my room, which children had had the benefit of a quality uh, preschool program and how much work um, I I was ready and willing but needed to do uh, with children that had not been part of the group, that have not had the benefit of being read to, interacted with, um, formal, had the opportunity to have formal learning uh, experiences. And it's not just a challenge for that child, but it's a challenge for his or her classmates um, because the teacher then has to focus all the more uh, on, on children who need them more. So uh, I think we, you know, we have studies that show there's a four-to-one return, but I think, it, I think that to some uh, degree undersells uh, the benefit of 
uh, that kids get and, and that we all get from this. So, Mike, I'm going to bring it back around again. <laughs> Given that there's, it sounds like not a whole lot of evidence that, um, that pre-K isn't a good investment, why has this been a 20, 25-year project for us in the state? I, I, and I want to point out, so, so Ted talked a little bit about the high-quality component of this. And so there, were, there are critics who will point to other studies. Tennessee is a good example that Tennessee kind of rushed in and f- shoved kids into seats, and they didn't really focus on quality. And then the, the sort of studies of the Tennessee project resulted in, at the very least, lackluster results. The, 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 the first answer I'll give you is sort of the old agreement in education funding was from first grade to 12th grade, the state's going to take care of your kids. The state funding formula will take mm-hmm. care of your kids. You know, and then, of course, we have the audacity to say, well, we ought to be sending kids to full-day kindergarten. Um, and then, you know, as a as a person who spends time over at the state house, when you come and start talking about pre-K, it was, well, you told us we had to fund kindergarten for six-year-olds or five to six-year-olds. Now you're coming back, and it's sort of we we were we're, we're changing the mindset. And and in some appropriate ways, state budget mm-hmm. legislators say, oh, that's another expenditure where where we can show savings. They don't. They don't think about spending money here and saving money here. They think about spending money, mm-hmm. and so part of it is this again, this getting people to think a little differently about how we fund important programs like education and the net result, how we calculate sort of success at the end of those things. Um, and so you know that that when we talk about the four to one return, we're not mm-hmm. going to see that really until mm-hmm. years down the road. It took. As I, I talked about yeah. the Columbus program, it took them a couple of years to sort of net that return and make their their sheets balance, but they did. But it's it's changing mindsets, and it's changing mindsets at time at a time when sometimes our legislature has gotten a little more conservative in certain components, and so we have to we have to address this issue of of is it is it just daycare and shouldn't the parents be responsible for that? And as I said, there's been this you know handshake agreement we take care of first grade through 12 or kinder K through 12 and now we're now we're changing that model uh, I I will say also th- that we shouldn't um, go without thanking the legislators mm-hmm. who did fund an additional you know 20 in fact the process was was at the end we ended up getting more money than either body of the legislature passed originally so mm-hmm. that's a success and they have put 20 more million in and they have 22 million and they have expanded the county. So we're moving in the right direction. As a as a consumer of good government that Eli Lilly is, we think we're not moving fast enough. And quite frankly, our position is pre-K should be a component of the state's uh, education funding formula. Christina, how many, when we, we talk about expanding um, from five, adding 15 counties and getting to a total of 20, how many children is that going to serve? Because you mentioned even in the five pilot counties, we got to wait. We have waiting lists. Correct. So we do have waiting lists in the current five pilot counties. Um, well, it really depends. So part of the funding um, allocated twenty percent for capacity building. So we were talking about that high quality component, which is key to overall success, not only for the children but for the program. But to build that high quality, particularly in places where there isn't enough seats. You have to expend money on the front end. So we've done a lot of that in Marion County and the other four pilot counties to build those high-quality seats. So 20% of that funding will go to capacity building, and then the rest will go to scholarships. Um, So it depends, but I think that the state is looking for ways to um, stretch state dollars. So layering federal dollars, which is our child care development fund um, block grant that we get from the federal government, layering that and then putting the on my way dollars on top of that so that we can serve as many kids as possible. If you're just joining us, we are talking about uh, changes in Indiana pre-K out of the just-completed legislative session. If you want to join the conversation, you can send us an email at nolimitswfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI, on Twitter at WFYI, or you can do what a listener named Don has done and give us a call at 866-476-3881. Don, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. I had a question. There was a a study. In fact, NPR did a report on it back, I think it was around 2005, 
dealing with the benefits of Head Start, and they found that the there were really minimal results, and they basically petered out by the third grade, so that early education basically was initially beneficial and it was measurable in the first, I think, kindergarten, first, second, and then petered out. Why should we think that this program is going to be any different as far as the benefits? Thank you for, for the call and the question, Don. Ted, I'm going to throw that one to you. Sure. I'll, I have a couple different uh, responses to that. One is I think uh, our government learned a lot from that original study and has really increased the standards and quality of the Head Start program. So uh, I'm very um, optimistic about where Head Start is going, and, and we see that uh, taking shape in Head Start programs all over Indiana, all over the country. So I think Head Start is, is a, it's a new day for Head Start, and um, we're optimistic about the quality and outcomes we'll get from Head Start in the future. But in terms of um, uh, benefits diminishing by third grade, that is something we do hear sometimes, and uh, what we see is that uh, is relatively temporary and that, and that uh, benefits do persist, especially around uh, social uh, and behavioral skills, um, even much, much, beyond, much further beyond third grade. And um, I, th- I think it's also worth you know, addressing the importance of ensuring that children continue in quality education kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. Uh, Pre-K is not uh, a magic or a silver bullet. It it can't solve the world's problems. So it needs to be coupled with great uh, experiences, birth through three, and then great education after that. So we want to ensure that pre-K is part of a quality educational continuum. We've gotten a question from a listener named Ashley who did not want to go on the air. she asks, would like to know if all children gener- generally benefit from pre-K or just a certain group of young children. Ted, I'll throw that one to you first. But I, uh, Christina was smiling, too, so I'm going to give her a crack at that one as well. Well, um, uh, my kids benefited from a quality pre-K program. I think most of us, I think I heard Mike said his kids went to pre-K. I think I think all kids benefit from pre-K to some degree, but there there has been a considerable amount of research that's shown that children in disadvantaged uh, uh, homes or uh, low-income families uh, who are less likely to have access or less likely to have the the supports early on in life um, get the greatest benefit. Christina? I would agree with that. This legislation was specifically focused on um, low income um, and offering that access to um, individuals that and families that couldn't Um, afford it, but I have a three-year-old, and I see time and time again him learning new skills, being able to spell words at three and count, and things that, yes, I could teach him at home, and we do do supplemental, but that experience in the classroom with other children and with teachers that are trained to be able to help him learn is immeasurable. So, and and we probably... uh ought to talk about because we mentioned this several times. How do we define what are the standards of high-quality pre-K? Mike, I'll go well, with you, but I'll, I want to hear Ted's and, thoughts and it's as well. The, the, that's actually a, a key component. So so there are, uh, the On My Way program, there are levels three and four. One of the things, this conversation got started back, Ted was actually in the United Way position when, mm. when and you heard Christina mentioned the CCDF program, which is the federal program. There were no um, health and safety requirements for the the daycare centers that the CCDF dollars were used at. And so one of the things we went through and methodically sort of building stair, building stair steps up was saying, listen, if you're going to if you're going to receive government dollars of any mm-hmm. kind, you ought to have at least the basics of health and safety standards. And then and then you don't qualify to receive scholarships as a daycare, as a, as a pre-K program, unless you're at either level three or level four, which are curriculum-based. They're obviously the health and safety standards. And I'd, I'd hand it off to, to Ted or Christina to go into a little bit more detail, but it's that, that whole component of making sure that the kids are exposed to a high-quality learning environment. Okay. Ted. So uh, as Mike alluded to, we, we as a state have um, begun, have over the past several years, implemented a 
a, a stair-step approach to quality, or what we call our Pass to Quality Rating System. It originated in Fort Wayne and was uh, in, implemented statewide in 2008. And what it does is really sets sets the bar for uh, safety standards, for um, educational environment, for uh, for families to ensure they're they're taking their children, especially at their levels three and four of the four level system to a program that incorporates a curriculum that has trained teachers. But I would also say that um, we need more than that. We need to make sure that uh, teachers are highly effective. Um, Pre-K is no different than than K-12. It's really all about the teacher and ensuring that we have a well-educated, well-trained, well-compensated teacher that is effective, that is responsive, that is um, tuned to the individual needs of the child is what is going to make uh, the difference for that child. And when we talk about the difference between three and four, that three is the minimum that they, they qualify for government funding, what are those distinctions? Christina? Sure. So level three is, um, as Ted mentioned and Mike mentioned, with curriculum, so specific mm-hmm. curriculum based on the child's age. Level four is the national accreditation, and the state recognizes a number of different national accrediting bodies um, to make those a level four. Okay, so to qualify to be level four, you have to submit to an accreditation process by some educational institution. institution. What is the the ideal when we talk about pre-K? Are we talking about from age three on, Ted? Well, I think the state's program is focused on four-year-olds, so that you're mm-hmm. leading up to kindergarten. But um, I've heard you mention earlier that you wanted to have yeah. great experiences <laughs> from birth to age yeah. three. Yes. I was aware the state <laughs> yes. focuses on four, so I caught yes. the discrepancy Thank you. there. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think uh, yeah. what the, there's an enormous amount of research on brain, how the brain develops in the first three years of life. Um, or learning it in as an organization that serves children birth through age five. Parents, families need high-quality child care for infants and toddlers, just like preschoolers need a great experience. And so we need to make sure that we're also uh, working uh, with our partners around the state and our communities to connect uh, families with quality uh, programs for their very young children because those kids need uh, good experiences as well. So uh, if we're trying to, uh, and I probably ought to get some sense when we talk about the waiting list and all of that, what the demand is. I mean, here in Marion County, Mike, I think you'd indicated that was the place where the waiting lists were the longest. About 2,000. That's at least from last year's data. Mm -hmm. We've gone through enrollment for this year, but I don't know what the waiting list is for this year. So we're still, so from a CCDF standpoint, Mm -hmm. we're over 2,000 kids under 127%. So, um, a family of four that makes less than $30,000 are waiting for a CCDF um, voucher. Um, But from an on-my-way standpoint, we tend to get, um, we tend to turn down two of every three applications due to demand and um, capacity of seats. We we know, and correct me again if I'm wrong on this number, we know there are 27,000 is it 27,000 three- and four-year-olds or 27,000 three-year-olds? Four-year-olds. Four-year-olds. Four-year-olds that are not in a high-quality pre-K setting in, in Indiana. Not, okay. Not many. Okay. And how many are we currently serving through these programs? Do we have have any idea? Well, I, think, I think with the state program, it's somewhere between two and 3,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but there are uh, other, other children that have access to programs that are funded through other sources. We mentioned Head Start earlier. Uh, CCDF uh, is a is a program that also serves many four year olds in a level three and four programs. So in schools, schools provide a lot of pre K as well. But your your point is there is still a great unmet need. Yeah, and so, that's where uh, we're going to go here in the last segment. Um, uh, we are talking about the changes in Indiana pre K here on No Limits. My guests are Christina Hayes. She is the Vice President of Public Policy for United Way of Central Indiana. Mike O'Connor, who is Senior Director of State Government Affairs for Eli Lilly and Company. And Ted Maple, who is President and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. Send us an email at nolimitswfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. I'm John Kroll. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, Director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile.com, and your host. We're talking about changes in uh, pre-kindergarten education here in Indiana following the just-completed session of the Indiana General Assembly. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at nolimitswfyi or on Twitter at wfyi. My guests are Christina Hage. She is vice president of public policy for United Way of Central Indiana. Mike O'Connor, he is the senior director, state government affairs, Eli Lilly and Company. And Ted Maple, president and CEO of Early Learning Indiana. So I heard uh, earlier, uh, I think it was Mike, but Christina came in pretty quickly, um, that we that the goal long term is to see that pre-K is made part of Indiana's education funding formula and that it is part of Indiana's education system. Uh, Got to ask the question, what would that cost? Do we have any estimates on that? Because I imagine if just getting these pilot programs has been a heavy lift, that's going to be a very it, heavy it, lift. And it depends upon how you define it. So if you if you define it as universal, um, I'm going to quote Senator Kinley, who I think at one point in time told me something in the ballpark of $400 million. Um, We have, as an organization, we have as a coalition, really wanted to focus on kids in need, right? So whether it's that 127% of poverty, mm-hmm. one of the important components of the legislation that was passed um, allows in the five pilot counties, if we get to the kids, the uh, scholarships to the kids at 127%, we're allowed to go up to 185% of the poverty level. And if you think about the cost of, of pre-K, I think the scholarships are $6,600. $6,800 per kid. If you think about the cost of what, and that doesn't really mm-hmm. cover the full cost, um, but, but a family at 185 is 45,000 45, per year. It, 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 it's hard for them to afford that. My kids, when they were that age, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're really focused on the kids that are in need. Mm-hmm. And I think anywhere between our, our estimate, and that's all it is, is an estimate, is between 200 and 250 million. Okay. Per, per year? Per year, per yes. year, so we'd be looking at uh, over a you know a two year budget cycle about a half billion dollars. Right. right now, and don't forget, we would you know as this plays out, it, 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 there's always the investment period. As this plays out, there will be remediation money that isn't spent. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope, right? That isn't spent because the the, the we won't have to remediate for kindergarten. Uh, I, I I could pull out the IPS budget, as you know, I, mm-hmm. I've begun to know that one very well to show you at every grade level where we're investing in remediation. Um, and so that that there are uh, efficiencies in the system that get netted out. So so while that, while the cost of that program may be X, you will see the savings all the way down the line. So and and if I recall correctly from the example of Columbus, Indiana, you said it was what, about a two or three year before they began to see some I of the returns? I think that's that's anecdotal, but I believe that's what they said. You know, they had to they had to sort of front the money and then fa- they were able to phase out a good portion of the remediation, remedial spending. How would this, uh, I mean, among other things, I would think you'd have to, to change some infrastructure things because many of our traditional schools aren't really, they're, they're set up for people of a certain age, even the elementary schools. Would this look like, uh, and Ted, I'll throw this one to you first, but I'd like Christina's thoughts as well since we are kind of moving into un- uncharted territory here. If we did make a statewide commitment, to uh, to pre-K, um, what would that look like in some sense? Well, I think Christina alluded earlier to uh, set aside a 20% of, of the funding that would be available for capacity building around the state. So helping school districts, I'm assuming um, other organizations, communities, develop um, and grow seats in their community, uh, expand quality options for families. Early Learning Indiana, with the help of a lowly endowment grant, has been able to provide capacity building grants all over the state, and we'll continue to do that because at, at, as it stands now, if we, if we had uh, all the money that we needed, we couldn't serve all the four-year-olds in Indiana in a high-quality setting. So we have some work to do. 
to to build a program, we can't make the mistake that Mike alluded to that Tennessee did and just build it fast without the infrastructure and quality we need to make sure we get the outcomes. Yeah, take the field of dreams approach, right? That if you build it, they they will come. If you're just joining us, we're talking about pre-K in Indiana. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a buzz at 866-476-3881, as Josh has done. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Certainly. What's a, on your mind? Yeah, I've just got a couple of comments about the, the mandatory or the optional pre-K, I guess, at this point. Um, it seems to me that the speaker was saying that he can see a big difference between someone that's been involved in pre-K and and when they're coming into kindergarten, and I would fully expect that um, because most parents aren't taking very much time or putting forth any effort to train and teach their children to prepare them for kindergarten. It seems like they're wanting to, you know, they have to work or they want to work, both parents outside the home, and they're wanting to delegate the responsibility of teaching and training their kids more and more to someone else. And uh, I have uh, some friends that teach and I've heard a lot of them say, you know, if the parents are involved, that's what really makes the difference more than the pre-K program or the preschool program. It's the parental involvement that seems like the missing key to this puzzle and that if we can put together programs that will adequately prepare and uh, teach parents to be able to train their children themselves instead of passing that responsibility on to someone else, that that would um, take care of a lot of this debate. And we wouldn't have to be devoting more of our state budget to um, pre-K. We could be devoting that to training our adults to be better adults and better parents. And then, you know, it is more money out, but hopefully that would also translate to better citizenry overall. Josh, thanks very much for the call. I'm going to let Mike uh, have the first crack at that one. Thank you for the call and the the comments. Yeah, Uh, yeah. thank you for having me. Certainly. A lot, of, a lot of what I've learned in, in this sort of arena it comes from my friend Jim McClellan, who was the mm-hmm. president CEO of Goodwill Industries, now is the, now is the state's drug czar. And his, his, he hates know, that term, by the way. He would say, you know, and, and, yeah. and if you know what Goodwill does, we're dealing with these type of issues all the time. We have a high school at Goodwill now. Yeah. What, what Jim would tell you is if I knew then what I know today, I would open up a pre-K facility. And for the folks who say it is all about parental involvement, they may be right. And there are some components of this program, by the way, the state program, where if your child is going to avail themselves to the scholarship, there are parental involvement requirements for exactly that. But in the end, we have an issue and we have to fix the issue. And Jim would say we need to get over that and we need to just do what we know works. And I will tell you, again, whether it's the Perry Preschool or the Chicago studies or anything else, it, 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 and in fact, the Indiana study that has shown the, the engagement in the program that the parents gain has provided all sorts of external benefits outside of just what we're seeing with regards to progression of the learning environment for the kids. Christina, I, I mean, and we hear this, this kind of argument echo through so many of our educational debates about, you know, where, um, I'm trying to think of a neutral way to frame this question, and there really isn't one. Is this in some ways kind of a false choice? I mean, rather than being an either-or, should we be talking more about this as a both-and? We need more parental involvement. We also need um, more early education opportunities. So I would say yes, and actually the language that passed had a lot of parental engagement components to that. So one of the benefits of the system here in Indiana is that it is all based on parental choice. So one of the unique parts about our program is it's a mixed delivery system. And what I mean by that is a parent gets to choose if their child attends a high-quality center, a school, a private school, a home, um, they a registered ministry. They are able to, in essence, select the type of environment they would like their child to learn in And we as a state support that as long as it's high quality. And as part of the legislation that passed this last session, um, with the help of both House and Senate leadership and the governor's office, was about making sure that that parental engagement piece um, was center as we move forward with this program. We've gotten a question via Twitter from a listener named Philip. And again, if you want to send us a tweet, you can find us 
at uh, WFYI. Philip writes, and we talked about this a little earlier, but it probably bears repeating. How do you define high-quality preschool? Ted, I'll throw that one to you. Sure. Uh, I'll also talk about parents uh, in my okay. answer because yeah. I, think it's, I think it's important to uh, a high-quality preschool program will do everything it can to partner with and engage parents. In, in our 10-day uh, early learning centers, we employ about 200 early childhood teachers, and I think all of them would agree with me when I say as important as teachers are, a parent is the single most important person in a young child's life. And a good early childhood program will do all it can to partner with and support parents in their role as their child's first and most important teacher. So there are things that programs can do. There are uh, pa- programs can communicate with parents, f- give them information. Uh, we have a texting initiative called Bloombright, where parents can receive free text two times a week on on tips on how to engage with your kids. Uh, Good programs can help um, four-year-olds when they're they're ending pre-K transition into kindergarten that best suits their needs and their individual um, um, preferences. So I think a quality program does engage and involve families. Um, But then secondly, that teacher, as I'll, I'll say, I said it before and I'll say it again, it all, it's all about that teacher. That teacher should be highly trained in the unique um, skills necessary to provide quality pre-K, quality early childhood education. And that teacher has to have the right disp- disposition. It's not about lec- uh, teaching pre-K is not the same as lecturing history, history class. They have to be down and engaged and uh, with kids, know them, because a four-year-old has such a wide range of of variability and development. And so that teacher has to know every single child's individual needs and preferences and skills and abilities. So um, it it really is all about the teacher. Are there states, um, uh, Mike, I'm going to throw this to you because I know you, you, Eli Lilly, as you pointed out before we went on the air, has people sort of keeping track of all 50 state governments. Are there states that are are doing pre-K really, really well? We've sort of pointed to Tennessee as the, you know, example not to follow. Are there some examples that we could follow that have done done it well? The the short answer is yes. I think we're one of eight states that doesn't fund pre-K. Am I right on that, Mm -hmm. roughly? So, so, I mean, there are 42 other states that are doing much more than we are doing. Oklahoma has been one that said, essentially, we think this is a key component of of our state's education program. And then I think you're going to, there are others, uh, I think Massachusetts has a very good program, although, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, you never, when you're working legislatively, you never want to cite <laughs> Massachusetts as your example yeah, in yeah. Indiana. Particularly not, yeah. but I, Oklahoma I, is a much easier yeah, to sell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'd refer to Ted or, or Christine even, uh, who, who might know sort of where there are state models that are the best. But I think the, the point Christina made, which is something that we've reiterated is yeah. we, we think the the, the mixed delivery system, right, the, the caller talked about parental involvement. We firmly believe parental engagement, parental involvement is important, and that's why we haven't said the school systems need to be the delivery mechanisms. I don't, I don't know with regards to other states, Ted, what your, what your thoughts are. Well, uh, the National Institute of Early Education Research puts out a, a, a report every year uh, on how states are doing in pre-K, and they use a number of factors to, to basically grade them. And, and there are states that are doing a great job, like uh, Oklahoma, as you mentioned. Uh, New Jersey has a, has a long-time, highly effective program. Uh, there are a number of states that are, that are meeting the basic criteria of what constitutes high-quality pre-K. Is the teacher highly trained? Are, are there standards in place? Uh, are the children using a curriculum that's based on, on what they need to learn? And so um, I think while there's lots of variability in quality across the country, and there's lots of variability in how it's delivered. Um, I think Indiana has an opportunity to to really step up and, and be one, one of the best states. We're very similar to a program um, in um, Minnesota that's that works in kind of the same way. It's voucher-driven. Um, it's parent-choice-driven. Uh, I think that model works really well for Indiana because it gives power to families, and it recognizes that a good pre-K program can happen in a school, 
and a child care center and a faith-based organization, provided that it meets quality standards. Well, one, one thing I want to we, – we've skirted around mm. it, but I don't think we said explicitly. One mm. of the things we didn't get into this uh, piece of legislation that we wanted was was teacher parity, mm. essentially mm-hmm. pay parity. So we want pre-K teachers to be recognized as teachers. We think a pre-K teacher is every bit as important as a K-12 through teacher. And so w- that's one of the things we're going to come back and work on is making sure that the, there is pay parity between – um, the, the, the teachers at pre-K and the other levels also. going to try to sneak in one more listener question. This is from Patricia via Facebook. She says, since the focus of this conversation is around kids at risk, kids that are most in need, I'd like to ask if there are any provisions in the legislation that was passed to offer funding for wraparound programs and services in the social-emotional area for kids who live in high-crime areas. Okay, Christina? Sure. So, as part of the legislation, um, the last round had a 10% philanthropic match um, that was a cash match. We believe that, you know, philanthropic resources should wrap around, should provide transportation, should provide that family support. So with the cash match being um, cut in half to five, we'll be able to uh, better provide those wraparound services. But that's something we're always looking at, particularly with um, the population that uh, we're reaching through these programs, um, which are the ones most at need. So if I'm assuming that there are probably some parents out here, new, relatively new parents, who are thinking, boy, I'd really like to get my, my kid involved in pre-K We've talked about numbers like 127% and 180. What does that amount to? I mean, to qualify for this kind of support, if you're in a family of four, what's the income? 45,000 45, is, is 185% okay. uh, percent of, uh, of the poverty level. What do we say? 30,000 30, is, r- is roughly the 127% family of Family, you know, based on four. family four, this, those, those estimates. The other thing I would I would urge you to do, the, the, we've always organized under – Ted is a partner with all of us under the United Way, and the the, the On My Way Pre-K program is organized through the United Way, and the, reaching out through two one one to to ask those questions about what am I what am I eligible for, where can I go for help, even if you're not eligible for the the state's program, they can tell you where the high quality pre pre Pre-K programs are, and that will two one one is the place to go then apparently. That'll have to be the last word, uh, at least for this hour. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this quite a bit in the future. I'd like to thank my guest, Christina Hage, Vice President of Public Policy of the United Way of Central Indiana, Michael Connor with Eli Lilly and Company, and Ted Maple of Early Learning Indiana. I'd like to invite our listeners to come back on Thursday when we're going to be talking about why literary reputations rise and fall. I'm John Crawl. You've been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us. No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Producer, Shannon Cagle. Interactive Media Coordinator, Scott McAllister. Technical Producers, Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And Board Engineer, Joe Hatcher. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting stations. Mm